Welcome to Rainmakers. Now to our host, Carl Grant. Welcome to Rainmakers. I'm here with Ken Lambert, Director of Industry Development and Technical Services for the International Masonry Institute. Welcome, Ken. Hi, Carl. Thanks a lot. Before we kick this off, I want to just mention to our listeners, this is a podcast about business development, about how you do business development across a number of different industries. And Ken comes from an industry that I really don't know much about. It's uh, construction and building materials. And he's listened to a few of the podcasts and he actually reached out through my producer, Seth Grant, and suggested he would be a good guest. And we've talked a little bit before this uh, interview and I, I agreed. So Ken, tell us a little bit about the construction and building materials business and how you go about doing in business development, building an industry association. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, th there's a lot to it really. And um, as I think you, you probably know, um, your typical commercial development or commercial construction project, the, the, the lead time and the planning involved in that is, is, you know, years in the making, you know, for a complex project, it's, you know, five, six to 10 years, oftentimes, uh, be, you know, going through all the approvals, going through uh, different uh, blueprint uh, sets, going through a lot of things, uh, going through all the different neighborhood associations. And, and then, and then it's almost like the easy part is building the building. Uh, you know, it's a long sales cycle. It, it is a long sales cycle. So for me, you know, I'm in um, generally the, the Northeast region, the New England region, and that's really my my purview. And I've been in this industry and in this region for for all of my career. And um, so, you know, it's the same thing I think with the other types of um, industries as far as business development. Uh, you know being out there, being seen as a resource, right? Being seen as an expert in, you know, X, Y, or Z. Um, you know, I think that's, that's a key part of it. And, you know, in focusing on the long-term business development, as opposed to more of the shorter term, you know, outside sales or, you know, uh, sales, quote unquote. And, and so you mentioned that you interact with unions and so forth. Yeah. It, it, it seems so that world seems very complex to me. How do you go about and lay the groundwork for the types of relationships that you need to do on multi tiers? It sounds like there's a lot of tiers to what you're doing. Yes. So, I mean, um, different states, you know, then you get into the jurisdictions, right? I mean, different, there are some states that are very strong with their union regulations and laws and bylaws, and some states, you know, are not. So, you know, we don't need to go down that road here, but, um, you know, in where I am and a few of the states are, are quite strong in, in the union world. So there are some cities like city of Boston, let's say it, pretty much any construction project that is in the city of Boston by city mandate um, must be uh, a union uh, a union project with union trades. And that there's many different unions, obviously there's Masons, electrical unions, laborers unions, et cetera, carpenters and all that. So in Boston, if it's a large job, it's a, if it's a $50 million project, $100 million project, you, you know, there will be union, uh, all the different trades and subcontractors essentially will be union on that. Where it gets a little fuzzy on the uh, business development side is, so stepping out of Boston and out of uh, the nearby uh, Cambridge, et cetera, then you get into, there aren't city mandates that say, 
for the most part, there are not city mandates that say something must be union. Uh, so then you get into the selling essentially of why go union, right, versus non-union. And so that's so I do have those conversations quite a bit, uh, you know, with developers, with construction managers, with architects, with consulting engineers, et cetera. Yeah. So talk us through the different layers of the relationships. I'm I'm fascinated by this because because I it makes it what I do sounds simple, right? You you got a entrepreneur and you got a lawyer and right. and you kind of connect the dots. Um, but it sounds like you've got a you've got to deal with poli politicians. Yeah. Uh, union representatives. Yes. Right. Yeah. The, the builders. Take me through all the tiers because this is something that's totally foreign to me. Well, I mean, there's a lot to it. So um, let's, you know, we'll go outside of Boston for a moment and outside of Cambridge and outside of some of those cities that have those mandates. So in, in other towns, in most towns and cities, there is not a mandate. Um, there's, I'm sure you're familiar with the term, you know, prevailing wages, right? Prevailing wage rates. Yep. Um, so that, you know, the Davis-Bacon Act and all that. So Basically, there are pro any job that has federal dollars going into it, all right, even if it's only 10% of the project, any project with federal dollars going into it um, must pay prevailing wage rates. And so prevailing wage rates, essentially, the union sets those rates for the most part, okay, without going down a rabbit hole there. But so we, the union uh, craft workers, the signatory contractors, the, the, the mason contractors or carpenter contractors that are in the union, um, they have a very good chance of winning those bids because the wage rate is you know, set at a, you know, at a higher level okay, than, than the private market. So private companies can bid on those projects and sometimes the union loses those projects because there's no mandate that it has to be union. There's only a mandate that it has to be prevailing wage. So when I look at projects and I look at, I thumb, I just this morning, I was going through project leads, construction databases and all that. When I see a project that is, you know, uh, prevailing wage, then I know, you know, it's worth me looking into it because we have a decent chance of winning that project. We meaning the union, uh, the union companies. When I see a job that is private and it's not in Boston and there are no federal dollars into it and it's just and then you get into just a commercial private, you know, we're building a strip mall and all that in a suburb and all that, then it becomes, as, as you know, probably a lot of times, you know, the developers and I used to work for a big de a developer in the area, you know, it's all about what's the what's the bottom line, right, dollar amount and if I can get a you know masonry package for a million dollars instead of 1.8 million dollars. I'm just throwing those numbers out. <laughs> I'm a developer, you know, it's my money, or you know, I have some venture capital or whatever. I'm going to you know choose the less expensive option, which in a lot of you know upfront option, which is in a lot of cases a, a non-union contractor. So, so to get these projects that you're you're pursuing. What kind of relationships do you need to maintain, or do you do you just cold call on these things, or do you know them ahead of time? So, so there's a you've probably heard of the Dodge Report, uh, maybe maybe not. It's no, kind of, I, I have not heard of it. This okay. is totally foreign to me. Okay, yeah. So, um, in the AEC world, which is Architecture, Engineering, Construction world, that's a, our funky ac acronym. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's there's a bunch of services that are out there that are essentially construction project construction lead databases and the dodge report is one of the largest ones and then there's other ones construct connect etc there's a few others so you know, I spent a lot of my career sifting through these online databases. And so they're updated continuously every day and all that. So I go through and write, you're almost using like, you know, AI type back office tools to write set different levels of where do I want to look at? I'm going to look at Connecticut this morning and look at projects leads that are all over $5 million, let's say. And what about, and you can even set it. I want to look at schools or, you know, again, types of construction projects, types of buildings. So th those are ways of seeing like what is out there. And then right. I would generally just go and see, And but it's also a contact list in there of, you know, who's who's the architect listed, who's the engineer listed, et cetera. Then again- It helps if you know one of those people, right? It helps if you know one of those people. So on the architect, yeah. So, I mean, I have different, you know, I've been in the market here for quite a long time. So I do, you know, know some of the people, but a lot of times you might, you don't know that exact person, but you know someone at that firm, right? That architectural firm. And I'd right. say, hey, let's call John, you know, what do you, what's going on with this project? Is this really going to break ground in March? And, you know, all of that. So you have those initial conversations Right. But you can't be afraid to uh, make those cold calls, you know, say, oh, I don't know anyone there. Well, you don't just give up. Right. You, you have to start from scratch and, uh, you know, do, do all that kind of what I would call uh, reaching out and almost outside sales type cold calls. Mm -hmm. So now how do you go about setting, get, you know, establishing these relationships? Because everything I do is based upon relationships. I, I, I don't get to cold call people. <laughs> People yeah. like to do business with people they know and trust. And so, so right. in your world, how do you get to develop those relationships? So, I mean, one thing is, you know, working for the company that I work for, um, IMI, International Masonry Institute, um, they have a, a, a good reputation, you know, in the market. They've been mm -hmm. around for a long time. We provide a lot of free services to designers and architects. Um, so that is where we, that's the value that we bring. We, we basically are a, you know, uh, repository of best practices okay for like the a lot for the construction industry for a lot of what we do so that's the value that we kind of bring and people know our name or the company name uh for for which is a big plus right um for me personally i i've found and i've done quite a bit of um writing of professional writing and in industry and trade writing for a few different magazines and uh large websites and large groups within the construction world okay and the yep. AEC world and that that has helped me you know gain some traction right of you know people see that i belong to this or i'm the vice president of this or association or i've written for architect magazine and you know those kinds of things so, I so think they recognize you, you when you reach out to them they like oh ken lambert i've read your article well sometimes they do or sometimes they may read my article and then reach out to me oh that's even you better know, yeah, yeah, which obviously for me, that's, you know, I've had that, you know, happen several times, you know, which, which is nice. So it's just, but as you know, I mean, those things don't happen overnight and they don't happen in a week. I mean, you, I might, I do a lot of writing and, um, you know, for some of these organizations and, you know, stuff might start flowing back to, to me six months from now. You yeah, know, so you, from your now. LinkedIn says you have over 17,000 followers, which... Yeah, that, that be, you beat me by a few thousand. So you must be doing something right. <laughs> what What do you do that that draws seventeen thousand plus followers to your LinkedIn? 
Well, I mean, I've made a point on LinkedIn. I mean, I don't know how long you've been on LinkedIn, probably for a long time, right? Yep. Uh, myself as well. I mean, even when LinkedIn wasn't a big deal, right? Uh, when it was just sort of starting out uh, the first couple of years, I was on there and just started and really made a point of reaching out to people. Obviously, LinkedIn will feed you people that they think that you might want to connect with, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll kind of scroll through those a little bit every week or so. But really then making a, a point of, I've, I had a project, uh, right, a, a job prior to my current job, where I was the national sales engineer for a Canadian uh, manufacturer. Um, so I was essentially running the, the US market for them. And we didn't have a large marketing budget. You know, I, I was the marketing budget. Uh, and so I used LinkedIn. I mean, I was on LinkedIn every day for, you know, hours a day. Um, really, that's where I built a lot of those 17,000 uh, connections and followers because I just had to make a point of, I want to reach out to them. Hey, what's my focus? Am I going to Dallas in a month or two months? Let's look at Dallas and let's look for, you know, people that are architects or structural engineers there or whatever. And just, just sending those connection requests and, you know, you just have to spend the time. Um, and, you know, and I did. And the other thing is, is um, posting good content, I think, or <laughs> I like to think it's good content, but posting any content on LinkedIn, I think is, is key because people see that, you know, and you, you know, you know that as well. People look, when they see you, they look at your activity and they say, hey, this person is relevant. Forget the 17,000 connections. This person is actually caring enough to uh, post things that they think is, is relevant on LinkedIn. If you have a LinkedIn profile and you haven't, even if you have 17,000 connections, we have no activity on there in two years. I mean, that, I think that says something. So have you been able to take, it sounds like you reach out cold, which I, I try to avoid doing. I try to, I try to get to know somebody, you know? So I, in fact, I have my LinkedIn set so that you have to have my email address to, uh, to send a you know connection request sure. because I, I don't like a bunch of random people, you know, and then, then you're supposed to know this person, then you get asked about them, but right. reach, it sounds like you've done some cold outreach. Have you been able to turn some of that into actual relationships? I have. Oh, yes, I uh, definitely have. I find that, um, and there's a lot of data out there, obviously, and, and again, you, you probably know that too. I mean, people will um, respond to a LinkedIn private message, you know, a lot quicker and better than they respond to a cold email uh, per se. So that, that by itself mm -hmm. is the reason to do the LinkedIn connection requests. And, do, uh, and so when, once you reach out and they connect with you, do you do a phone call? Do you, how do you develop that relationship? Yeah. I mean, you know, if someone requests or someone responds, someone that I wanted to connect with, then I would typically, um, you know, send them what I would call a, a soft sell, you know, quick little email, you know, thanks for the connection, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I see that, you know, you worked on this, uh, you know, project for Centennial and, and, uh, you know, and, you know, that's interesting or, you know, try to say something and then have a, you know, obviously a web link back to, you know, our, um, our website or my email and all that. And then, you know, sometimes that's, that's it for that point. And then sometimes they'll respond further and sometimes not, but then at least I've set that groundwork, right. Uh, the, where then two months from now, if there is, I, I see their firm name, right? You know, and I do this all the time. I just did it this morning. I see their firm name that they're at a project that is listed as in pre-design. I can say, 
hey, wait a minute, I know, you know, Sally over there, or, you know, at least I'm LinkedIn connected to Sally. And then I reach, I'll reach out to Sally and say, hey, you know, we connected two months ago and all that. And I see that, you know, your firm's noted as the uh, architect of record here, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, I, I usually start it like that and then, then work into, you know, a phone call if there's something specific or real there. So for a final question, I, yeah. I see that your undergraduate, you you studied, you got a bachelor in science in building construction technology. Yeah. So it sounds like you knew what you wanted to do right from the get-go, unlike <laughs> some of us who had no clue. I, I, I did broadcast journalism. I guess I'm kind of doing broadcast journalism right, right now, but that's yeah. not what I do for a living. What, what would you say to a young person, a student today who, who wants to do what you're doing? What, what recommendations would you have for them? Well, I mean... I, when I got into it, it's funny. Um, yeah, my, uh, my father was a builder. He was a mechanical drafter and designer. Uh, I, I have two uncles that are masons and general contractors. Wow. I started off as 17 years old being a mason tender, which is basically just mixing cement and carrying bricks all day, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and carrying bricks up, you know, five flights of scaffold and all that with no OSHA regulations and all of that. Um, you know, so I started off doing some of that, but I knew that I didn't want to be, you know, carrying bricks necessarily all day. Um, and so, you know, went to school to really learn about the, 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 the details and the technical aspects of all of this, which there, there, it, it's quite complicated. We haven't talked this whole call. We just talked about the business end of it. We haven't talked about, you know, what kind of flashing you use at a foundation detail, you know, all of that, which is very real. And that's actually where the, that's the nuts and bolts of it. Right. Um, but it, it takes time. So, I mean, I would tell a younger person, don't be afraid of the building industry. And some people think that the building industry is a little bit uh, slow or backwards or, you know, we're not as progressive as, you know, the software industry, obviously. And, you know, some of these other uh, industries out there, we, 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 there is some truth to that, I think. But that is changing. And there's things out there with... Um, uh, BIM is something called building information modeling, which, you know, really makes a, uh, a two-dimensional CAD drawing into a three-dimensional interactive uh, tool for planning purposes. And so you're really building the building in three dimensions mm -hmm. almost. And then that then becomes, uh, you know, but you're catching mistakes and all of that. And so there's a lot to it more, you know, more than just, you know, I'm on a site and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying, I'm, I'm yelling at uh, the laborers for not cleaning up. Uh, you know, there's parts of that too, but it's a huge part of the economy, as you know, yep. and so that's not going anywhere. So I, I would uh, tell a young person to, to, to stick with it and don't be afraid. All right. Ken Lambert, Director of Industry Development and Technical Services for the International Masonry Institute. Thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thanks, Carl. Have a good one. You too. You have been listening to Brain Makers with Carl Grant. Brand.